Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Reproducer. Hello, I'm Mark Jeeves. And I'm Jenny Nelson. And this is Reproducer, a podcast that tries to understand that otherwise unfathomable job of radio producer. Why do we do it? What do we actually do? Will I get rich? Well, the answer to the last one is no, but it's a hugely passionate and fulfilling career, as we'll hear now, as we welcome another of our guests, this time the multi-award-winning BBC current affairs producer, Lucy Proctor. Being really disciplined that the story has to drive the whole thing all the way through was really key. We wanted people to really, really, really want to listen just because they wanted to know what happened next. What is beyond the pale and what can you put on Radio 4 as long as you're challenging it, as long as you're giving facts and and letting the audience kind of hear these debates? Now, I was really keen to get Lucy on as a guest because I was really rather obsessed with the series The Coming Storm. Um, which you must listen to if you haven't already, which explores the reasons leading up to the storming of the Capitol in January 2021, looking into QAnon and conspiracy theories and social media. And uh, it's presented by Gabriel Gatehouse. Lucy will tell us about the making of this, but as soon as I heard her name as the producer, I was kind of like, she's someone I want to speak to. We spoke about her love of long-form audio, what it's like working in the BBC's long-form audio team, what's next for The Coming Storm, other projects she's particularly proud of. And I think if you have any interest in news and current affairs, this really is an interesting conversation to find out how Lucy and her team create documentaries for the World Service, for Radio 4 and for BBC Sounds. You know, really insightful, intelligent, thought-provoking programming. And we started off by asking her what attracted her to radio. So I started out in local newspapers. Um, I, I thought I wanted to be a print journalist. I did want to be a print journalist. So I did the print journalism course at the University of Central Lancashire. Then I kind of went away for a bit, came back and worked in local newspapers. So I really liked writing. I wasn't that interested in broadcast journalism because I just thought of it as being TV news. And I didn't want to do TV news. Um, 
And then I worked in, yeah, local newspapers for a while. Then I worked in development in telly and still hadn't really thought about radio. And I was trying to kind of move on from development and possibly, you know, I wanted to be in documentaries. And then I just, I think it was just because of iPhones, you know, smartphones. Suddenly you started to be able to listen to the podcasts and and radio documentaries. There weren't really series at the time, but there were podcast documentaries um, and things like Radio Lab. I used to listen to Radio Lab a lot. So this was in like the 2010s. Um, and I just suddenly realised that there was this medium that was kind of perfect for me because I, I like long form. Um, I'm not, I mean, I can do news, but I don't really enjoy it and I've not really got the personality for it. Um, but I I kind of found print journalism a, a tiny bit dry, I suppose. I liked the creativity that you get when you're kind of cutting other bits together as well as your own words. Um, and yeah, it just became, I just started listening quite obsessively, really, to stuff on my iPhone, kind of a lot of the BBC stuff, um, but also a lot of the American, you know, the Americans were a bit ahead of us, weren't they, in terms of the way that they became very stylistic and really pushing kind of production values and storytelling. So, um, yeah, I decided I wanted to do that. And since you've been in radio, what's uh, what, what's been your sort of career rundown, if you can put it that way? It's been it's been very boring. I've just been in one place for the whole time. Uh, so I came into the BBC's. It used to be called Radio Current Affairs. It's now called Long Form Audio. It's effectively the same thing. It is Audio Current Affairs, right. basically. So audio documentaries. We're a part of news. So it's got a news focus. It's not really very. It's not features. Um, although we do kind of do some more featurey stuff. But there's always a kind of news. Current affairs, quite hard edge, um, really, to the stuff we're doing. So I came in here as a researcher, uh, 2010, I came here, and I've been right. here ever since. So, I mean, I've gone off and done other bits and bobs in other departments for periods of time. I've worked at Panorama and worked in a new department that we had for a while called Digital Current Affairs, where I did video for a while. Right. But I've always come back here to long-form audio. Okay, fair enough. And that's producing predominantly for what channels? Historically, we were the people that did all of the documentaries, the newsy documentaries for Radio 4 mm. and World Service. Right. Um, we do a bit of stuff for Five Live as well. Mm. But now, obviously, we're feeding the BBC Sounds machine yeah. as well. Um, so we're, we're almost kind of like a little indie inside the BBC. It's kind okay. of slightly strange. We're sort of funded in this slightly strange way where we basically have to get commissions. So we operate effectively like a little indie inside the Beeb. And how big is your team? Uh, I think uh, it changes a lot. We just had a big round of cuts. We'll have some more cuts on the way. Um, so it's been a little bit traumatic here, to be honest, for the last couple of years. Um, I think there's about there's always around kind of 80 to 100 people. We've also, okay. so we're split across London and Salford. We've got quite a big operation in Salford and the plan is to move more of the operation to Salford, which is obviously very controversial because we all live in London. Mm. Um but, uh, yeah, it's quite a big department and most of us move around between programmes. So there's a few people that just sort of stick to one thing, but mainly we all work across lots of different programmes. So we do foreign stuff like crossing continents and assignment for World Service and lots, quite a lot of foreign docs for Radio 4 as well. We do newscast, which is the daily um, thing with Adam Fleming. 
We do Ukraine cast, we do more or less, um, we do... I'm working on this new thing at the moment called Antisocial, which is a kind of culture wars live programme um, on Radio 4 on Friday. So we do a real range of stuff, plus all the big hit podcast series. Cool. Well, I, I mean, I really want to ask you about The Coming Storm and also Antisocial. But first, something that we ask all our guests, and we often get quite varied answers, is how would you define the role of a producer? And obviously for you, predominantly an audio documentary producer. Yeah, good question. Um, I mean, it always amazes me how few people in the industry seem to know what a producer does, especially when it comes to awards and credit. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I think a producer's job, the nice thing about a producer's job, I suppose, is, is you can kind of make of it what you will um, to an extent. Obviously, you're kind I mean, I think you're in control if you're the producer and you should be in control of the project. And if you're not in control, you're going to run into issues so you know you've got to be in control of of everything that's going on whether or not you've got other people that might be doing things for you finance and booking staff and all the kind of logistics stuff you know you you, you, you basically you've got to be doing that I see myself as a journalist more than a producer but I sort of see myself as both but I see myself predominantly as a journalist and certainly for the kind of stuff that we do the the kind of narrative podcast stuff that's obviously very popular now and really exciting I think you've got to have a pretty good journalistic background for that um, because of the kind of level of detail that you're going into as a producer you tend to be across the structure and the vision of the program I mean we often get presenters um, or reporters that have had an idea but they very rarely know how to make something really long basically but then other times you know it's it's more of a team effort and you're you've got somebody who's you know, there's quite a lot of people in our department who are producers and presenters. I present as well. So then you're kind of working more in a team. So, yeah, I think you're kind of journalistically, logistically, structurally, creatively in control of the programme. I mean, maybe I'm just a control freak, but that's the way I see my job. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's excellent. That's great. Thank you. So, um, yeah, The Coming Storm is a series that I was absolutely gripped by, and I know I'm not the only one. I thought the way that the story sort of unfolded, the way that Gabriel Gatehouse narrated it, the way it it flowed. I mean, I'm just fascinated by how how did it come about, and what were your biggest challenges as the producer of the series? Um, thank you for the praise. Um, so. It came about, Gabriel had the idea, a sort of rough idea, which is which was kind of, you know, became quite different um, once we started working on it properly. So, you know, the beginning of the programme where he goes to the witch's drawing class. Uh, he did, you yes. know, it was it, basically the first 10 minutes of the programme is really how it came about. It's It wasn't kind of like a, a fiction. It was really how it came about. So he went to this witch's drawing class, which he really liked and locked down quite randomly for no reason. Um, and she was great, this woman Louise, and she'd kind of made these connections between the witch trials and the witch crazes of the 15th century and this book by Heinrich Kramer, who was this insane, I mean, it wasn't that insane by standards of the time, but by our standards, insane um, priest who became obsessed with women, basically, because he'd been rejected by one, um, wrote this screed about how these witches were kind of, you know, the enemy within, the enemy within that was going to kind of try and bring down order, the order of society. 
Um, she made that connection between all that stuff that was going on and this kind of current weirdness that we have. Um, so he, that kind of, you know, he sort of, that was in his head. At the same time he was covering, because he used to work at Newsnight, he's left the BBC now, but he was working at Newsnight as their um, main international editor. And he was hearing about QAnon, but he didn't really know anything about QAnon. He didn't really know any more than your kind of average journalist about what it was. And he just thought it was nonsense. Um, and then when Trump got in and all this stuff about Hillary Clinton, be you know, lock her up, lock her up, he sort of had this idea that QAnon might actually be kind of more important than people thought. So he pitched that to Dan Clark, who was the commissioning editor at Radio 4, and it was quite a kind of basic look at QAnon, um, over 10, 15 parts, um, kind of looking at the Watkins, uh, Jim and Ron Watkins, who a lot of people think is behind Q, they deny it. And then uh, I got brought in once it had been commissioned as this 10 times 15 series, and then we started developing it, and it became something <laughs> much, much, much bigger once we actually started working on it together. I mean, uh, we immediately got on really well, me and Gabriel. We both really loved the witches thing. I love witches. I like anything to do with witches. Um, so we we kind of both knew that we wanted to make something that was really, really ambitious. We made a rule really early on that there's going to be no talking heads and no analysis was allowed at all, and no help in the narrative. We weren't going to kind of get somebody to kind of tell a little story about something so that we could get back into it. We only allowed people who had been involved in this kind of 30, 40-year process to be in the programme. I think that is really key to why it worked. I think that just really, really kind of being really disciplined that the story has to drive the whole thing all the way through was really key. Gable's a really brilliant writer. He's got a great turn of phrase. But we basically wrote it together. We sat at his kitchen table or my kitchen table because a lot of this was made in lockdown, of course. You know, we had our kids. Our kids were around. It was all very stressful. But um, we sat at each other's kitchen tables and we just wrote it together and it was really slow and painstaking. We we had so much stuff, obviously, once we'd done all this research. We basically researched. We had a, Originally, we had eight episodes, so we took four each, basically, and did the... Because he was on it full-time, which was a really nice luxury to have the reporter-presenter on. So we took four episodes each and did the research. He kind of did more of the Arkansas stuff, and then I did more of the kind of more more recent stuff kind of after the year 2000, I suppose. But once we'd kind of got like all this evangelical stuff, the satanic panic stuff, the sovereign individual stuff, which if you haven't heard it, it will make no sense. But if you had, have will. Um, we just had to try and try and put it in order. And um, yeah, we just, we just were really, really conscious that we wanted people to really, really, really want to listen just because they wanted to know what happened next the other thing that I had a real thing about from the beginning was I wanted it even though the some of it's quite dark and some of it's very very kind of high politics um and it's very complicated a lot of it I wanted it to just be a really nice place that you're, you're in because you're asking people to spend you know six hours with you of their life or whatever so I wanted it to be beautiful basically and to be a kind of really cool place to be in. So I think those two things, kind of making sure the production values were really, really high so that it's a really beautiful place 
And then the way that Gabriel and I approached the storytelling, um, I think that's why people liked it, basically. How did you, this might be a strange question, but how did you know where to stop, like, on the research front? Because was it just a matter of deadlines and timing? Yes. Okay, <laughs> right. Yes. I mean, we had a very hard deadline, right, which was January the 6th the next year. Of course. Um, so, I mean, these long projects, these long podcasts, they can take... I mean, they can take a long time and they can go really over and over budget because you can get, you know, you can get kind of trapped in, in, in the research, really, because you can go anywhere, can't you? And and you're encouraged to go anywhere because you've got to fill all this time. But yeah, we had we, we just didn't have very much time on it. We only had six months on it. So we did three months research. We did this trip. We did all of our recording in 10 days in America, which was quite a crazy trip. Um, and then we had a couple of months off where I was doing other stuff and Gabriel was doing other stuff. Then we came back in the September and we started writing it and it had to go out in the January. So basically, we I mean, we, we, we could only do so much. And are there plans to do any more? Because you did, was it one or two? Yeah, we did a couple of extra for the um, midterms, which um, I think they were a little bit worried about them. I don't think they quite knew what we were going to do, but actually there was loads to say about this kind of groomers stuff that's been going on in America and how that fits into all the kind of Save the Children QE stuff and then the Hunter Biden laptop story which is this whole theme that we've got about the mainstream media especially the sort of liberal establishment media refusing to cover stories that are inconvenient to the ideology that they have so we really enjoyed doing those two we're going to do we're definitely doing a second season series um, which we are going to start, I think we're going to start it towards the end of this year, um, which is going to be, you know, the same but different. Um, <laughs> and then I think we might do a couple of extra extra things because we've kind of got this sort of thing that we do now where we're kind of looking at the complex backstory to something weird that's going on in current affairs. That's our thing really now, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that's brilliant, and I look forward to hearing more uh, over to you mark yes thank you i'm just before i move on to other work that you've done uh, i'm very interested to know do you monitor numbers of how many people are responding or listening to this responding to these things and is that important to whether or not it happens again like you say with series two or is that not not something that's a priority for your department it is a priority yeah it's definitely a priority um the numbers for the coming storm were brilliant um, we were the best, we were the most successful podcast of last year that the BBC made ever, ever any genre. Right. Amazing. Um, so, yeah, we were very, very pleased with it. Obviously, there's other podcasts that get more listens over the year because they go out every day. But in terms of how many that we did and the listens that we had, yeah, it's done really, really well. And that's been really good for us because I think it's done a couple of things. Um, the thing that I'm really proud of it for doing is that I think that people can be a little bit dismissive of audiences or a little bit patronising of audiences when they think about how complex you can make a project, how much you can kind of fit in and how journalistic it can be. So there's been a kind of trend to do these kind of really simple true crime things where basically just, it's just like the really simple archetype of a, of a search for who did it or the really simple archetype of you know, a whodunit with a dead woman or whatever. I mean, I know that's a bit of a cliche, but even when you're not doing a dead woman, it's still... So there's been this idea that things need to be very simple, don't fit too much into each app. And we didn't do that. And I think that 
that's been quite good from our department's point of view and the BBC's point of view, certainly Radio 4's commissioning, that actually you can, audiences do want to know a lot of things about the current situation. They are interested in the news and they are interested in these big kind of geopolitical trends. So the numbers, the fact that the numbers were so good, I think, has helped to make that argument. Obviously, it helps getting a second season as well. And just from our point of view, yeah, it's just been really, really nice. You know, the thing that was lovely about it was we were seeing on social media, because we didn't, we got some promotion, we didn't get loads of promotion. It was mostly just people sharing it and people were saying that they'd binged it, which was just, I mean, just amazing from, from our point of view. We were so happy. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Reproducer. Aside from uh, Coming Storm, what what are the other projects you've been on, or a couple of the other projects that have also you've been very proud of? I made a doc a few years ago. It's a single documentary um, called The Boy in the Video, which got quite close to winning a pre Europa, but didn't quite make it. Um, but I was proud of that. I had this horrible experience where I got sent um, child sex a child sex abuse video. Uh, to my phone by like a mum at my child's school. It was completely insane. It was one of the worst things that's ever happened to me, honestly. It's, I mean, until it happens to you, you kind of can't quite imagine it. But weirdly, I met somebody else at the BBC outside the lifts who it had happened to her. Someone had sent her this stuff. And it's so, you know, it was it was, it was the worst thing you could possibly imagine, right? Um, happening to a very, very young child. And it was just unbelievably awful but I decided to make a documentary about it because I, it's just really hard. To, I've tried in the past to make documentaries about child sex abuse. I've tried in the past to make documentaries about family courts and things like that, but it's so hard to make those documentaries because the police don't want you to make them, the courts don't want you to make them, and you just can't, there's no way in. But this was a kind of way into it, basically, and it was pretty hard. The, the police were absolutely a nightmare. Um, at one point, they were kind of, pointing the finger at me it was all, it's all quite strange wow. um but I was I was really proud of that documentary um again I got a lot of responses from people who'd suffered child sex abuse um I had this amazing interview in it with this quite young man who um he'd he'd been videoed so he'd been filmed by his abuser when he he was about sort of 11 12 when it had happened and he so he knew that all of these videos are out there um, in the world and people are watching them. And he, um, in America, they've got this law where 
they send you a let the courts send you a letter every time there's been a prosecution of somebody who's viewing your videos. And at one point, he was just getting letters through his door all the time. He oh did. He was. He was. Yeah. He was amazing. You know, it was just an amazing interview, um, and it really, really resonated with people to kind of have his voice on. And, you know, he was kind of all right, but not all right. Mm. Uh, he was very honest about that. Um, so I was really proud of that. I quite like doing quite hard hitting stuff on the whole. I've been quite proud also I've been covering the gender walls since they started, basically. So for the last well they've since they've really kicked off in the last kind of eight, nine years. I've either done that on my own or I've done it with a colleague of mine called Linda Presley. Also with this new programme Antisocial, various docs that I've made um over the years, I think that um I've kind of made a contribution to that area because journalists have basically failed in my opinion to cover that story properly and to kind of tackle these really hard questions that that question poses for us as a society so I've I've enjoyed it and I've been pleased to be a part of that I mean just to ju- jump in on that with um I've listened to various episodes of antisocial in particular ones about gender debates and I'm assuming you you were involved working on those ones. And am I right in thinking it's a live program? Yeah, because every word seems to be very considered. Obviously, it has to be. You know, the nature of of the pro- the format and the program is you have to be very clear. Everyone who is speaking has to be very clear about their argument and the words that uh, the choice of words they're using. And I love it how you get in um, authorities who can give concrete definitions of certain terms. But how do you as the producer work with Adam on a briefing? Is it just very, very thorough briefing beforehand to ensure that as a live programme, it stays on the course it's meant to go on? Yeah, I mean, we write, you know, we write the script. Um, So it is script. So Adam's bits are quite scripted, but also, you know, Adam's really great. He, um, He has come from being in kind of, just normal Westminster politics, um, daily news. And he's come onto this programme, which is completely different. You know, it's still politics, but it's a completely different kind of politics. Um, and so at the beginning, it was kind of briefing him a lot. But he's he's now that we've done these subjects, because obviously you do the same subject, but in different ways, he kind of gets the subjects. He's very, he kind of understands all of the arguments now in the gender stuff um we do a lot of research yeah i mean we've only got three debt four days to put it together so it's not huge and there's only three of us doing it so it's quite hard work but yeah really really good briefs and i think it's more the ethos of the program really it's more that we're trying to say okay you know we do have red lines so overt racism is an absolute red line other than that, we don't have that many. I mean, overt kind of misogyny, you know, we wouldn't have like, we'd, we'd play Andrew Tate, but we wouldn't have somebody who was going to make Andrew Tate's arguments on the programme, I don't think. Although we would have somebody who was quite close to Andrew Tate, I think, making the argument. So it's about being confident about what is beyond the pale and what can you put on Radio 4 as long as you're challenging it, as long as you're giving facts and, and letting the audience kind of hear these debates because there are some challenging things that are said in these debates and I think if you if your red lines are too close to your own beliefs or your red lines are about are we going to get um, heat on social media about this then you're not going to be able to get into the debate so we've got 
we've kind of got, I think we're all quite clear about where our red lines are. And the production team um, got a woman called Ellie House working on it and somebody else, Phoebe Keane, and then Simon Mabin, who helped launch it. I think we've all become quite clear about where those red lines are. So when we're casting it, obviously we talk to a lot of people when we're casting it and have quite long conversations with them. And, you know, we're very open about what we are happy to hear from people. But if people do start veering into some of these red lines, particularly around racism, um, you know, conspiracy theories is a really difficult thing because people can be a bit conspiratorial, but it's still reasonably held belief. So, for example, we wouldn't not have an anti-vaxxer on just because they were an anti-vaxxer. We would think twice about having somebody on who was really pushing really harmful misinformation about the risk of having the vaccine, for example. But we would allow somebody on who was a bit worried about the risks of the vaccine if they're young and they're having their fourth booster, because that's a perfectly reasonable thing to think, right? So I think it's just thinking through really carefully what's what what's okay, what really is hate speech, what really is misinformation. We use these terms a little bit loosely, I think. I'm fascinated to learn about the casting process because some of the, the people that I have heard on particular programmes have, in a very good way, really challenged the way I think, you know, in a really good way. And some of them I just think, oh, they're vile, I wouldn't want anything to do with them. But you're in their company and so suddenly they become more three-dimensional. Yeah, and like everybody's much nicer in real life. I, mean, I, I would say everybody than they are online. You know, people who... Um, we have on the programme, you look at their social media. I mean, we won't allow people on if their social media is like really horrible, but they're much less pleasant in their social media feeds, much more militant as well in terms of what their ideology is because they're in a they're in a battle, right? They're in a war on social media. Not that there's any point to it because you're never going to change the world by arguing on social media, in my opinion. Um, but when you get them together and they're live on Radio 4, there's a natural safety valve in that you know people know that they're live on radio 4 they're not going to say the kinds of things that they would dash off in a comment while they're on the tube on twitter after someone said something that annoyed them you know it, it's fascinating stuff and actually it's interesting to hear you speak lucy you're operating at a, a very high level in radio or, or, or audio production and you know we, we've had we, we had all sorts of different producers on working across different uh, types of radio It'd be very interesting just to find out who uh, was your mentor or who has been someone in your career who's been very important to you? I would say Linda, actually, uh, who I mentioned earlier, Linda Presley. Uh, she is a producer in this department. Uh, she's actually left because we had all these cuts, but she's back now as a freelancer. Um, she's um, a bit older than me. She's about 15 years older than me or something. And I started working with her on various documentaries and she's just... I've learned, I think everybody that works with Linda just learns so much about journalism from her. She's so kind of ferocious in a way in her reporting, but so empathetic and kind of understanding of the humanity of people, even when they're doing wrong things or bad things or, you know, when they're doing kind of amazing things. She's just kind of got this approach, this very humane approach. And I think I've tried to kind of emulate that and think about that because I think listeners like it as well. You know, they don't, even when you're doing something very investigative and hard-nosed, they still want to feel something, um, I think. So Linda has been a big influence on me. I think also just more generally, I mean, I wouldn't say I've ever had, I've never had a proper mentor, 
and I haven't really had somebody that's kind of when I was younger I felt quite lost I sort of knocked around quite a lot and I didn't really know how where I was going to go or uh, how I was going to succeed because I did want to succeed quite badly um so I could have probably done with a mentor when I was younger but since I've joined this department there's Linda but there's just it's a really amazing department this department that's people come and then they just stay because we all kind of mentor each other there's so much to learn from people in this department um people that are younger than me as well I learn a lot from the people now coming through who are younger about the kind of new politics that they've got but also I do think young people are are kind of they've got this nice thing you know where they do try and be a a bit kinder and I think it can go too far sometimes but I think that's good for your journalism as well just to kind of think a bit more carefully about the impact that it's going to have on people's lives. No, I think that's that's nice to hear. And interesting, you talked about yourself as being you know, lost at one stage, not quite sure. So, uh, let's imagine that you could give yourself a bit of advice as a as a young producer. What, what what would it be? You know, I say to people who are younger than me here, don't worry so much. You know, try not to worry so much. Try not to kind of beat yourself up because you're not where you wanted to be at twenty seven, twenty eight, or something. But actually, I think if I hadn't worried so much maybe I wouldn't have worked so hard and then I wouldn't have got here because it did take a lot of work. It did take six-day weeks and, you know, making yourself a bit ill sometimes. And, and you know, you see younger people here now, you know, they won't take holidays when they're ill and they really, really, really want to finish this project that they're on because it's a great opportunity. And I'll sort of say to them, don't make yourself so ill. I've got, like, a chest, constant chest infections for when I was your age from working through uh, pneumonia and stuff. But actually, I don't think it's... Necessary. I mean, it would be nice if it was good advice, but I'm actually not sure if it is good advice because I think you do have to work really, really, really hard yeah. uh, to get to where you want to be. Um, but yeah, maybe maybe try to kind of worry worry a bit less whilst continuing to work that hard. Mm. I think would be my advice. Yeah, I think that's that that makes sense. But as you say, it's a passion job, isn't it? Yeah, it certainly you, is. If it's going to take six days a week, then that's it. <laughs> exactly. So to anyone listening, we always say this: it's always on. Always on is the is the key frame. Yeah, completely. You're always having ideas. You're always, especially especially I think with um, with long form and documentary making, mm. I think people who work in news, you know, they work really really hard on their shift, and it's extremely tiring and quite stressful as well because they the culture is different they're getting kind of more shouted at more and stuff but when they're finished at the end of the shift they're finished right like that's it the story's done you're going to move on to a different story the next day whereas I think with us you know you're on a project for anything from three or four weeks to six months to a year so you 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 never stop thinking about it and I think that can be quite draining so maybe that's another piece of advice actually is you know find those ways to switch off somehow sometimes yeah like the eternal quest yeah, let me know what, you <laughs> yeah. what I think is great about your career Lucy is well one of the things that's great is obviously you work on live programs you work on long form and you work across live radio and, and on, in the podcast world as well do you have any concerns about the future of traditional radio or not even concerns? What do you think the future will be? Yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? I don't feel particularly concerned about linear radio because I think that 
uh, there's just such a kind of audience for the podcasts and I don't I don't I think we can get a bit caught up in making the distinction between those two things sometimes obviously there are differences but there's a lot of crossover so you know a lot of people are listening live on BBC Sounds so they're not listening to a radio but they're still listening to the output particularly more the music stations than Radio 4. I think that you know, we look, sort of look back to a to a heyday sometimes because I kind of came in at the end of that. I came in as podcasts was starting to happen, basically. And obviously you sort of had this captive audience for something like the Today programme and the kind of big beasts of Radio 4. And people are not listening as much to those things anymore. And that's an issue if you are working on those programmes or thinking about how to kind of prioritise the money at the BBC at the moment, which is extremely tight. But I don't think you can really say it's a bad thing that that has changed, that social media means people don't really need to be briefed between six and nine in the morning. They're all get, already going to know it all. So I would really think it's up to us to think carefully about who our audience is. The BBC can become completely obsessed with young people because they're worried about this replenishers thing. Basically, they're worried that their audience is too old, they're all going to die and nobody's going to come through. But um, then we kind of become obsessed with young people. And there's absolutely no way young people are ever going to listen to Radio 4 at 8 o'clock in the morning. They're just not going to do it. It's not in their culture. They're never going to watch telly. They're not going to buy TVs. They're not going to watch BBC One at 9 o'clock either. So rather than trying to kind of get people back to it or kind of worry too much about it, I think that it's a case of just thinking, like, what can we offer what can we offer that's different to just scrolling through your, your Insta or TikTok or or even just reading, you know, the newspapers online? And I think there's a lot that we can offer. And and there's just a reality, you know, we used to spend a lot of money sending a lot of people to very expensive places around the world to cover these big stories. And they still want to do that, but there just isn't an appetite for it. And that's not to say there isn't an appetite for foreign news. There absolutely is. There just isn't an appetite for that quite old-fashioned thing of a kind of mainly guy. Well, that's not fair. A person, you know, who's who's pretty well-to-do, kind of wandering around the Middle East, telling you what's what. They pe- younger people just don't want that. So, you know, I think we've got to think really, really carefully about our audiences. Exactly who is Radio Four's audience? Exactly who is you know, the sounds audience for a particular thing. And as long as you're kind of, you've got the audience in mind, I think I think it'll be okay. It's not like people are not interested in media anymore. And they definitely are interested in news still. They're just not interested in the way that we did it in the 90s and the early 2000s anymore. We sort of tend to finish on a, 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 a it's an and finally moment, a lighter moment, uh, which is we ask, I guess, whether they've had uh, any moments which would come under the in their career, which would come under the, um, the the headings of OMG and FFS. We've had some quite interesting answers. We'd love to hear yours. <laughs> um, my OMG moment, I mean, the, I think the best thing about our job as journalists and producers is the way that we get to go places that you would never, ever get to go. I don't mean kind of destinations I mean kind of into people I just love the fact that just everyone invites us into their house right you just get to go in loads and loads of people's houses all the time have cups of tea find out about their lives go into offices go into like amazing lawyers offices that you'd never ever go in otherwise stuff like that I remember once um me and my friend and colleague Simon Cox we 
used to work on a programme called The Report, which was a great programme, actually. It was on Radio 4. It was a kind of weekly current affairs programme. We put it together really fast. It was really fun. Um, we did one about, do you remember the PIP implants scandal? So um, women who had had breast implants and they'd had these quite cheap and very nasty breast implants that then leaked. Very, very dangerous. Um, so we were doing a program about breast implants and we went and saw a woman having breast augmentation. It was the most violent thing I've seen. So we, were, we both had our surgeons, you know, fully like suited and booted up. Uh, I had my little radio thing. Simon was in there. I mean, she was lovely to let us do it and uh, just saw the whole surgery. Oh. Um, so that was a really strange, oh my God moment. I yeah. mean, we couldn't quite, quite believe that we were in there. Obviously, we did the story really sensitively and stuff, but oh, sure. that was an experience. And I really kind of really made, I would never, ever allow my daughter to do that. It was really quite a traumatic thing to see, actually. FFS, I just think, I mean, I'm sure you have people from the BBC on a lot. Just working at the BBC, it's a daily FFS uh, moment, to be honest with you. We're the, one of the biggest broadcasters in the world, one of the oldest, supposedly. You know, we put out all this amazing stuff, but if you come into this building, absolutely ridiculous, the resources that we're working with, um, nothing works. Uh, the computers don't work, the audio stuff doesn't work. So really, one of the... It's not just the, the BBC. Uh, yeah, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. I think it's just amazing, isn't it? You know, that we're kind of working with this this stuff. I don't know what it's like anywhere else, but one of the, the things same. that they did, <laughs> yeah. yeah, one of the things that they did is say so that we came into this new building. I think we came here in 2012, 2013, 2012. We came into the big new BBC building in central London. We were at White City before that in, in, in West London. And... Um, they bought these chairs for the studios. They're really, I don't know if you can hear this chair, but if you move this chair, they're incredibly noisy chairs. So we have to constantly say to people, we're really, really sorry, but when you come into our studio, can you get comfortable and not move? Because they bought really, really noisy chairs for inside the radio <laughs> studios. Just stuff like that, yeah. you know. I, I think I say FFS about five times a day. Producer. <laughs> There's always something in a company. It's not just radio, is it? Um, I mean, I probably would refer listeners back to the Tim Johns uh, gripe about printers. Printers. We've now had Lucy talking about chairs. Yes. There'll be there'll be another. I mean, we could probably talk about studios if you or I were. But slow computers. <laughs> yes, there is that. Um, but yes, there's always something. There's always something. But let's not let that get in the way of a good time. No. <laughs> Um, what did you think of that conversation with Lucy? The amount of work that went into the coming storm is mind-blowing. I mean, I, I'm not sure that I would be able to give it that amount of attention to detail. I don't know. I, I kind of... I kind of hope that I would be able to because the story is so fascinating. But that is a that's a level apart from you know workaday radio production, isn't it? I think mm. it was to, just to hear how much research they had to do, how much time they spent you know getting guests together, flying across to the USA. I mean, just a different world to that which I've been in. But one what a wonderful series that came out of it. And I, I really liked her description of her ambition as wanting to create a beautiful place for people to listen. And so the values that she placed, not not just on the content, but on the sounds and how the content was delivered. Yeah. I'm also still fascinated by the casting process for Antisocial because 
the programme is made by the polarising opinions of the guests that they get on. And so credit to the team for the people they managed to get on. That's such a that's another great listen that Lucy's worked on. And such great advice. Find a way to switch off. Yes, do. Whatever you do, you must do that because otherwise you'll find, you know, 2, 2 a.m. Is, is my waking up time going, oh, I haven't done this. Oh, what about this? Oh, what about this? You'll never sleep again. I have the recurring nightmares of being in a studio and not knowing why I'm in a studio and not being able to make any changes or affect anything and then the clock's ticking and, you know, it's, yeah. it's those nightmares. Yeah. If you're, if you're thinking of getting into radio production, be prepared. So if you enjoyed that conversation with Lucy, do remember we've got many other podcasts in the series that focus on great radio producers. People like Liz Barnes, producer of the Johnny Walker Radio 2 show, working with a legend there. Joby Waldman, who talks about his work as a documentary maker and as an audio drama producer, uh, now running Reduced Listening. Or for something completely different, the Simon Mayo Afternoon Show on Greatest Hits Radio. Susie Purdy joined us to talk about working on that. Uh, just follow or subscribe to hear new episodes as they're released. And until next time, we'd like to say thanks for listening and goodbye. Reproducer. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.